Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Angie Trudel Vasquez is a Mexican-American writer and the current poet laureate of Madison. She holds an MFA in poetry from the Institute of American Indian Arts. Finishing Line Press published the first half of her MFA thesis, In Light, Always Light, in 2019, and will publish the second half, My People Redux, in 2022. She became a Macondista in 2021. Angie, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you here. It was very exciting to meet you outside of Chicago for the Haiku Festival. Uh, that's That could be a whole episode unto itself, but uh, we're going to focus on, on, on your books and your work as a poet laureate. So in preparing for this episode, I read some of your prior interviews. You mentioned in one of them that your interest in writing started really young, around age seven. As you were growing up, what poets and styles of poetry fueled your dream of becoming a writer? Well, I would have to say if uh, poets were to birth me, it would be Allen Ginsberg, because I read a howl, and like many a young poet, you're like, wow, mm -hmm. this is so electric. I can't believe you can write this, you know? So that, um, that was really moving to me. And then Stanley Kunitz, just some of his stuff is just so beautiful. And for years, I kept one of his poems above my desk as inspiration. Like, that's what I'm going for. And then Carolyn Forche. Carolyn Forche, I was introduced to as an undergrad and the country between us um, is still like one of the most important books of poetry I've ever read because it allowed me to take the things that I was feeling inside and bring them to the page and know that that was okay. Because when you're a young poet, you're just kind of floundering and you read a lot of the, the older poets, but you also want something contemporary mm -hmm. and it feels real and alive. And these were poets that are around in our lifetime, not, you know, mm -hmm. 200 years ago. So those would be as a young poet, Stanley Kunitz, Allen Ginsberg and Carolyn Forche, who really made me. And then of course, you take off from there, right? And you're introduced to African-American poets and Latinx poets, and the world is ever expanding in poetry, as you know, James. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, that, that was similar to my experience in that I, I think that there's this stereotype impression of poetry if you have English teachers that linger too long and poets of hundreds of years ago, and of course there are beautiful poets across the ages, but if you don't include some contemporary poets, then you can risk alienating or turning off and making poetry just pure homework. So I agree. So what is it about writing poetry that you most enjoy? And what do you find most frustrating? Mm. What I enjoy is that automatic feeling of pen to paper, because I always write longhand. That's how I start every piece. And it's just the pen is ahead of me. I'm not even there yet. It's like there's another person in my body who is operating this pen. And I love that. You know, that's that's so cool because I want discovery. 
But the thing I, I struggle with is editing because I love to edit. The real writing for me is really in that. Like, I love the inspiration. That's fun. But what can I use out of that when I harvest it? Not a lot, right? It's just the ramblings of any mind on the page. But I like that kind of automatic writing. But, it, but the editing and turning something into a real poem that I'm ready to release into the world, that, that's the hardest thing for me, when to let it go. Um, I edit my pieces many, many, many times. So, um, and I'm still trying to find the balance with when to let something go. Yeah, no, I think that I struggle with that too. And I've, uh, with the, my first book and now a second one that's in copyating. A useful thing is once the copyator has got a hold of it, and you know that if you mess it up after that they've gotten a hold of it, then you only have yourself to blame. That's a good forcing function. But yes, it's very hard to, because you can edit things to a point where they stop getting better, but you don't know mm -hmm. when that point is. So yeah, it's, it's a great, yeah. uh, great observation. So in your mm -hmm. chapbook, which I really enjoyed, In Light, Always Light, your poem, Dark Night, is a wonderful example of the poetic form where the rules of prose are broken intentionally. Lines like, my man of sideways talking soft shoe, grooving, liquid arms, elbows waving. How do you find the form your words should take after you get that past that first sort of the pen ahead of, the, of your mind's mm -hmm. writing on paper? The poem has to dictate the form, right? The poem will let you know what is the best form. Um, I always practice my pieces aloud. And so I've trained my ear. Um, so for that poem, you know, I'm using an anaphora in that piece, but I am trying to get rid of, in that piece in particular, anything that's not serving the poem. So I get rid of all the dead sounds. I'm just really working with the the, the nouns and the verbs and the rhythm of the piece. And, and I know what's behind that piece, but I think I like to think it takes a life of its own and anybody could pull something out and say, I feel this. But um, that piece, that piece is a little dark, right? Dark yeah, night. Totally, yes. Yeah. And, but it's also like, this is what it is to live in the United States. Like we have this history that we don't always recognize or grapple with, and it's all here. And I feel like living in this time, embodying what it is to be a citizen of the United States is also to embrace all these things that we don't really want to talk about, you know? Yeah. But it's also like, there's beauty in the resilience of us too. And we're still here. So that's a, I don't even know where that piece came from, James, you know, but it, I like the way it shaped up. Oh, I, I love it. And I think it's also a great example of there's a risk. Um, there's a risk when you write poetry that have an, an, an element of a social issue that it becomes too concrete and it loses the poetry. And I think this beautifully talks about it. And in the poem you're going to read later, uh, really, it beautiful it remains beautiful poetry without losing the underlying meaning, but without the meaning overtaking the poetry. So I think that that's one of the things I find most difficult is to get that balance right. Um, and, and I don't want to place blame. Like that's a thing. Like I'm. This is this is this is our world. We're all part of it. I'm really not trying to like point fingers. I'm just trying to call it as I see it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you do that extremely effectively. Uh, so congratulations on being the current Poet Laureate of Madison, Wisconsin. What have your priorities been during your first term and what are you hoping to, to achieve in 2022? 
Wow. Okay. So I became the poet laureate in January of 2020 and then the pandemic hit. But um, I remember one of my first readings, you know, and bringing people in this virtual space and it's still poetry and they're still my friends. And we were having this great conversation. So I just took a lot of it online. We made it happen. I judged the Bustline Poetry Competition every year and we did it online. And it was a beautiful release for the, for the students and the people that I chose. And then the artist, the student artist at Edgewood College. So it was me getting my feet under me, but I campaigned on a youth poet laureateship. And on December 7th, the city council agreed to not only extending my term to 2024, but they approved the youth poet laureate for Madison. So now it's time to get those things going. And I've got a lot of partnerships. So in my time, Initially, I'm building the blocks, right? I'm talking to people, librarians, um, the community partners, everywhere I'm going, like, I want to do this youth poet laureateship. This is a huge thing for the city of Madison. This is a huge thing for the, for the children and the teens of Madison, something to aspire to. And then Amanda Gorman came and just like let everything out. Mm -hmm. So it was much easier post her to bring that to the city council. So I just met with the Madison Art Council, who's the body that governs me and um, shared with them my vision and they signed on because we need, we desperately need moments of positivity and celebration. And, uh, and I think they agree. And I just see this being a wonderful thing. This will be my legacy to the city. As long as they maintain it forever and ever, they'll have a youth poet laureate for the city of Madison. That, that's fantastic. And as a fellow poet, poet laureate, my term started much more recently back in July of, of this year. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to network and build awareness. And, and our city went through a lengthy period of not having a poet laureate. So the, the, the benefit of that is I, I pretty much have free reign to figure out what I want to do with it. The, the challenge of it is, of course, there aren't any, there's nothing systemic in place. So that was, that's really good advice to really focus on that networking. So um, take me beyond the Wikipedia definition of Macandista and share what it means to be part of this group of writers. Wow. So like sometimes there's things that happen. And you're like, wow, did that really happen? Um, so I received a request to apply for the Macondo Writers Workshop from someone that I highly, highly regard. And I said, yes, I'm going to apply. This person asked me to apply. I'm going to apply. I applied and I got in. So the summer of 2021, I went to the Macondo Writers Workshop. And the joy of all of it was I got to study with someone whose work I adore, Allison Adele Hedgecoke. And so I spent the first Macondo Writers Workshop with her. And now I'm a Mocondista. But the person who started this all was Sandro Cisneros. And it's named after uh, the village in 100 Years of Solitude, Macondo. So this summer, um, I'm hanging out with these poets and Sandra Cisneros comes in and talks to us. And, and I keep hoping that I get to go to Texas and meet these people in person next year. Now, maybe not this year, mm -hmm. but I, I'm kind of, I'm now not just, you know, an, uh, an alumni of Institute of American Indian Arts, but I've got this other thing I can say, I'm a Macondo fellow. And it's not just poetry. It's also social justice mm -hmm. and not just in the United States, but globally, you have to be, you know, someone with global concerns. And, and so it, I fit right in, like, these are poets and writers 
that I can work with, um, that I can learn from, and maybe they can learn from me a little. But they brought in agents and publishers, and who knew poets should have agents? That's what I learned this summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely on my list as I started necessarily self-published because my first book of poetry had been on the web uh, for a while, but pre me deciding I should really you know, aggressively go and, and take, take all the writing I'd done for years seriously. And now I'm, yes, I'm looking more the traditional route as I look forward. So um, what responsibility do you feel to go beyond creating beautiful poetry and through that poetry address important social issues? And we've talked, started to talk about this a little bit. How do you balance that responsibility while staying true to the poetry? Well, it's not too hard, right? Like, because poetry can only be added to, I think of it like science, you can only add to poetry, you can't subtract. And I write about things that are not political as well. Um, so yeah, I can write about flowers and trees and nature and my wonderful husband and, you know, my dear family member who I'm very attached to or my parents who I owe a lot to. But I can't help but being a political woman um, in the time and space that we exist in. Um, so it, it does filter in. Sometimes I take it out if it doesn't fit the poem. Sometimes I let it go, it's full ride. But um, there's got to be balance in everything, right? And I am really trying to create something that's beautiful, even if it is a hard subject. Right. So I am technically really working, crafting this. Like I have a lot of rules I follow, James. Like I am kind of like a, oh, I'm, I'm an old hippie ballet dancer. However, I know the rules and I play within the rules. And sometimes I break the rules to make something that I feel is really what I'm looking for. And that might take 30 to 40 drafts to get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So your title poem uh, my from your upcoming chapbook, My People Redux, includes the moving line, my people forgot they rose from earth. What unique role do you see for poetry in preserving and amplifying history and unique voices? I think it's a beautiful thing because poetry can time travel, right? Mm -hmm. In one poem, you can be five, you can be 10, you can be 80. You know, you can go back and pull your ancestors or your grandparents or someone, a meaningful neighbor to you. Um, I think that poets have got to be truth tellers. And so however you approach the page, whether you are someone with very strong Christian beliefs or if you're someone who has a social justice bent or if you're completely agnostic, you still have to be a truth teller in the piece. I think that's the first rule. You must be telling the truth. If you're gonna, you can't write a poem of lies, how does that even fall? I don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be the truth on the page. Yeah. No, regardless. I love I love your your thought there of you can time travel in a way, yeah, the the, the poetry having less and prose can be can can do all sorts of creative and nimble things too, but there are more constraints in prose that if you break them too much, it becomes almost unreadable. I think the only extreme example of that was the book Blindness. The author, Spanish author, escapes my mind right now, but there's virtually no punctuation or line breaks or anything yeah. and no paragraphs. And it fit the subject matter perfectly, but it took a good, you had to really slog through tens of pages before you got yeah. into the rhythm. Um, 
I do want to say one more thing about yeah, history. Sure. So I work with youth a lot, and and oftentimes I want them to tell their own stories, right? Because we're our own history, and history is kind of a moving thing. If you keep uncovering more and more, mm -hmm. so um, I like that about history. You know, there's some things that we can say, yes, definitely this happened, but we have historical pieces as well. And I like to think we're the sum of our literary ancestors. So every movie, every book, every radio, you know, all these things go into the poems themselves. So that that's the fun thing about it. Even even if if the history is very concrete, this thing happened. Well, how did the people involved in that history feel when it was happening? Right. And then you can interpret yeah. that many, many different ways. So yes, I think there's this incorrect view that, that history is static because there are textbooks of history and, you know, to no. textbooks is just a, is a, is a point of view on what had happened. Anyway. Yeah. That, that could yeah. be a whole other podcast, right? Oh, there. yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I love history and I read a lot of history and science, which does inform my poetry. I will say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, your bio includes an MFA in poetry you mentioned from the Institute of American Indian Arts. For aspiring poets, what did you learn in the MFA program that has most impact and most impacted your writing? So I was an organic poet. I studied as an undergrad. I was a Ruth Lilly fellow in my 20s. But what I learned in IAIA is how to ruthlessly edit my work and to be a really good editor, not of my own work, but of others. And I learned a lot of theory because I studied English a long time ago mm -hmm. and I really had to catch up with theory and the terms and how we talk about poetry now. So it made me a really good student. And um, I, I spent about eight hours working on my galleys yesterday and I loved it. But I remember getting these books together, as you probably know, you're pouring over every detail, every comma, every space, everything, every word choice. I mean, that's, that's a good time. So I learned stamina because I was working full time and then part time. So I'd wake up in the morning, edit, go to work, come home, eat dinner, edit. So it was this constant like two year thing of nothing but editing and writing and reading for a couple years, which was great. No, I yeah. can relate to that as, as I have a full-time job totally unrelated to writing poetry. And I was actually Dana Joya, former poet laureate of California, did, has done this YouTube series of being a, a full-time poet and a full-time something else at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. Um, so what is your strategy for dealing with the inevitable feeling of writer's block, which in my the way I think about it is I kind of know when it's it's, it's it's approaching and I need to do something to derail it. Um, you know, how do you get unstuck when you are unstuck or you feel you're going to soon be stuck creatively? I don't feel stuck because I this full-time job is really um, takes up a lot of time. So when I get the opportunity, like Sundays are my art days. That's just what I've determined as someone who has to work full time. But you can always go to a dictionary. And I heard that from Natalie Diaz. She's like, I'm never stuck. I'll just open up the dictionary, pull something out. Mm -hmm. So I was researching the state of Zacatecas as I was like writing this poem essay. And it took me up on a whole other tangent. So when I'm stuck, I like, this is terrible. But it's also good. I like to clean. I like to cook. I like to move. I'll take a walk. I'll do some yoga because I feel movement really helps me. So the whole time I'm like maybe doing some laundry, I'm actually like working things out in my head. So I'm I am the queen of multitasking household stuff, chores and poetry. Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, you know, if you go back couple of years ago, I was writing poems when inspiration struck, and that meant very sporadically. And then uh, a friend said, you should write more poetry at the end of 2020. And so I was like, okay, over the 
Christmas break, I'm going to write, uh, this is late 2020. I'm going to write every day and I've been writing every day since. And it's amazing nice. what writing every day does is you find, yes. you don't wait for inspiration. Yes. You go out and seek it out. Yes. Yes. I have this thing that says, um, you know, butt on chair, that's how you write poetry, but it's true. Like, it's like this relationship. If you don't show up and actively pursue it, it's going to go away. So yes. And sometimes, um, I'll just journal or write and read, but something always comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your poem, Kick the Can, brings the reader into lives of rural families with lines like, mothers run out of their kitchens, scoop stunned toddlers from the middle of the stampede. Remark how often this happens, animals breaking the semi's steel doors. Love that passage. But uh, what images and lessons in particular do you want to linger in the minds of your readers as you look at your new, your upcoming chapbook as a whole? This is a more personal chapbook than In Light Always Light. Because I think, James, poets are really good about crafting a piece so that's so distant, right? Sometimes you have to be worried, like, oh, where am I in that? Um, but this is more personal, like child pose cannot hold. You know, that's me being super vulnerable. And Kick the Can is one of those poems that I've been looking for a home for that for a long time. But I always want people to like really see the people I'm talking about. You know, and I've always lived with one foot in rural and one foot in, in urban. Like we swam in the cornfields, but then, you know, we would go to school in the city. And I just want people to see these people that are in this piece, which is also me and my neighbor. And then also, I love the idea of animals breaking through of their constraints. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of rooting for that. And um, I've gone off and on and being a vegetarian. And, and I remember connecting with these animals at the Iowa State Fair, or watching them run down my street and thinking, wow. You know, so it was, it, it was impactful as a young person to watch animals continually break out of their semis and run down our street. That happened like two or three times. I mean, it's such a hysterically funny and also just beautifully poetic way of phrasing that, that very visually fun. You can just see it happening. It's beautiful. Uh, so just one more question before I hand the mic over to you. Uh, so you've successfully had your poetry published. Congratulations, because Thank you. that's what all, I think all poets want permanence of some kind. Um, what have you learned through the, through the often, I think always a painful process of submitting your poetry only to wait months to be rejected more often than selected? You know, I have a special story about this because, um, you know, I wrote my first two chat books and I tried to get their first books and I tried to get them published, but, you know, they weren't being picked up. So then I self-published and then I got my MFA and I got a little snooty with my own work and I discounted that work. And then the Poetry Foundation bought four pieces from those two books. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I discounting that? Like, that's original, pure poetry. Maybe it doesn't have the MFA effect on it, but we're still the same person, right? Whether you wrote it when you were 20. And now that I have this body of work, I can see I'm the same person. My concerns are always the same. It just appears differently on the page. So don't discount your early work as a poet honor that work hold up to that work like that's still good work so you know I, I may have um changed but i am still writing about the same things i've always written about well you know it's interesting when i when i my first book was really kind of a way to make permanent the things i was most proud of over decades of writing poetry sporadically and then in a huge burst in 2020 and i ended up deciding to include four poems that i wrote in high school and 
I intentionally, I told the copy editor, if there's something blatantly wrong, fix it, but I'm not going to edit them because they need to represent high school James Moorhead, not mm -hmm. decades later. And interestingly, and I was figuring out where the heck do I put them? I can't put, I saw so to put them in as an epilogue so that they stood, they're so out of, they, they stood out and, and they're separate. And then there's some of the favorite things people liked in the book. So yes, that's so true is don't <laughs> discount. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't have written them now because I'm decades older, but uh, yeah, I'm still proud of them. And now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read a selection from your upcoming book. This is Everybody is Somebody's Child. For the woman who swims on her back, baby floating on her breasts, eyelashes facing the stars. For the girl who walks three miles for fresh water, gourd atop of her head, bare feet on earth. For the mother who shields her child with board games and hot chocolate from falling cluster bombs whose fingers read coins and saute red peppers, onions, gifts bought at the open air market, who quarters tomatoes from the stand along the road, roasts sweet corn from the back of a pickup truck on a lost country highway from a woman folded in half. The widow who hiked for days, holding on with both hands, two smaller than her own. Another one strapped on her back with a bottle stopped at a border due to the wrong stamp and offices closed for the holiday. The strangers who found her crying on a side road, a couple who crossed the Rio Grande with her later when the moon shone, though they had papers. Toddler perched on the man's shoulders, fingertips dangling, bags for precious lives, snacks, water for the journey. The grandmother who watches her grandchildren while their parents work outside the home, teaches them to share building blocks, how to read, walks them to the park to see the squirrels and ducks on the pond scatter at their joyful cries, short legs scrambling down the bank. The woman who rides the waves and prays the rickety boat will reach Lesbo's shores and on the other side waits warm bread, lentil soup, tea with honey, coffee, a bed to sleep, people who will throw open their doors and let them in, let them in. So the core idea of this poem is, is so universal and powerful. Tell me how you went through the editorial choices for the vignettes you chose to include and those that you inevitably, I assume, chose to exclude. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this for International Women's Day, and my cousin's wife asked me, they were in Naples, Italy, and I was really trying to build a narrative with images, right? So this is a universal poem, and I was thinking about the people who don't make it, you know, and it hurts me so much. Um, so I really wanted to build empathy with this piece. So I kind of start with um, couplets in the beginning. There's three couplets. And then I move into bigger um, stanzas with more lines. And so I'm really trying to like paint a picture with words on here. And I think about sculpting words on the page. But I want to say um, that I, you know, too, have my own story. And the fourth stando that starts with the widow who hiked for days, that's my grandmother, my mm -hmm. paternal grandmother. And the children in there are my, my father and his two brothers. And that came very late to me in this, in, you know, in the, in the way that people share stories. 
Um, and then I, I think about my own parents who help grandchildren. And I read during the time that I was writing this how without grandmothers, we wouldn't exist as a species that we are now because the grandmothers are the ones that help the mothers raise the children. You know, and so they're wondering like, well, why do women stop producing eggs? Like, what, what is this thing? And it's really so that we can continue on as a species. But then I come back to the real reason for this poem is building empathy for refugees and migrants. And I have a lot of concerns about that, not just because I too am an immigrant, um, and that's debatable because, you know, the lines and the borders change, but we have people here who need help. And at the very basic, I do think we should take care of all the people that are on the planet. So I'm really just trying to invoke something in someone to reach their heart to build this empathy with these images like i really am trying to do something with this piece and if it were to move anyone then i've done my job as a poet mm -hmm. i'm really just trying to connect which is the only thing i really want to do with the poems james is connect with others so i had a question during a workshop i did uh, a week ago about um if you're reading a, a piece of poetry that for any reason is affects you deeply which i mean i think every poem we write affects us deeply but some you know i have some poems where to read them i have to really use strategies to not get emotional because it, it'll get in the way of the performance what are your strategies for not having the emo how the poem affects you interfere mm -hmm. with the performance of the poetry this is so hard because like in the in the collection you have in light always like the poem arboretum mm -hmm. there's a whole backstory to how that poem even came to be and I would go sit on the gravestones and try and like meditate them. But as a children, we would go around and my mom would tell us stories in Newton, Iowa of, of the stories of our ancestors and the people came before us. So that one really gets to me. It's very hard to read that piece in public. So I have to really steal myself because I'm there to perform. But I've seen the best poets break down. Mm -hmm. Like after I had one of my mentors, he wrote a poem about his mom and then she passed. But then when he read it again, of course, there's all that emotion in there. So I don't know why we write the poems that we do, except for they need to come out, right? We're not always the driver, James. We are the facilitator. And how it comes, it comes. So um, I just have to be really, really steely with myself. And sometimes I don't always make it. I really don't. Yeah. So sometimes I had I'm to, emotional. when I was, uh, when I was interviewing Olivia Gatwood, is a wonderful poet. Um, and uh, asking her about a similar thing um uh or, or it's more about the the act of writing these poems gets it out of you and in that that's a healing element in itself so i was mugged by 10 kids 12 kids don't oh. really know the number when i when i was 10 years old in the boston subway hand over my mouth no one around and got lucky that someone uh, arrived just when i needed them to but uh, writing the poem was very difficult because I, if I want it to be true to it, I have to really relive it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. but then once I'd written it down, I, I, an interesting thing happened is when I recite it, um, I think of it as someone else's story for the period okay. of time I'm reciting it, and that helps not uh, that yeah. poem. And I think you, I agree with you. Some poems can benefit from that natural emotional response, and yeah. other poems it will 
um, interfere with the poem. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. It's tough. It yeah. is. Well, like uh, Dispatches from Radar Hill, which is about our 500,000 COVID debt, that's a hard one. And when I wrote it, I was weeping. Like my, my papers are full of tears. And that does happen to me. I'm, sometimes I'm weeping or sometimes I'm laughing. But more often than not, like with that piece, um, it was a really hard piece to write. Yeah. 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 So uh, you mentioned to me that you recited this poem uh, as your Poet Laureate inauguration on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. What have you learned from listeners moved by this poem? People really like this poem, James, and I'm not sure why. The faith leaders really do. Um, a lot of folks do. I, I think because basically I still think we're good people, right? Regardless of your, you know, partisanship, you're good people. You want your loved ones. I mean, most of us, I think, are good people. And I think it inherently we know what's right and fair, even if we don't always admit it. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I am asked to read this one quite often, and I'm not sure why, but it could be the pieces, the places that are asking me are social justice or their synagogue or, you know, something like that. I work in nonprofits, so, that, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits here. Maybe that's it. But uh, to me, people are able to somehow grab onto this. And I think it's the specific, the, the specific details. That's like the specific details are really what makes a piece universal. So I think that might be why, because you could visualize it. So it's like a moving picture that they can grasp onto. Yeah. Well, I could say that I I was certainly drawn to it, not for any of the reasons you said, because I'm okay. a, I, I'm what am I what do I do? My day job is I'm a I'm a in the tech industry, right? I mean, it's I'm an engineer in the tech industry, and and I was drawn to it because the vignettes were so powerful. I really liked the expansion visually. Um, so I think just structurally the, the the language that you use, I think it's just a beautiful poem. And it happens to be extraordinarily timely and relevant. Although, regrettably, uh, this themes that you write about, I wish in my lifetime that we would make substantial progress, but it's frustrating. It seems like the problem is just if it gets better in one place, it gets worse yeah. in another place. And uh, so I think it's a time, it's an unfortunately, it's a timeless poem, although I hope but it I, won't be <laughs> at some point. Well, I, I have to say, though, like we've made progress, like Howard Zinn, who mm. I like quite a bit as a historian, says you can only see progress if you look 100 years back. Yeah, that's true. And I do see progress that I'm the first Latina Madison Poet Laureate, right? That's a big deal. Or, you know, that's not that's not common. Um, and I think of poetry is having its day. But I appreciate all your comments, because let me tell you, not every word on here is chosen for mass effect. And I always want words to do more than one thing. So I am writing in a way to connect for sure. Yeah. Well, I definitely connected. I just thought it was beautiful. So I was I was Thank really you. happy when you said, yes, I'm, I'm going to agree to read that one. So finally, what can uh, your readers look forward to in 2022 with the release of your next book? How, how are you, you know, it's challenging for you and for me with our busy day jobs to do the things that full-time artists are able to do, but what, what can they look forward to next year? I'm going to do readings out of this book. 
which I'm really excited about. Um, and I am working on new and selected poems for another publisher. So I'm trying to figure out what are the poems from this collection, from InLight and my other two. Um, so I'm going to be testing. I have a new work that I'm working on as well, which is the history of humans. So I've been reading a lot of anthropology and science. I'm really thinking those things are starting to take shape. I'm having more of those. So I will, most everything is published in, in this, my people read ducks, but I'm going to, I'm taking this on the road. I'm going to take this to the Midwest. Like I am strongly a Midwest person, but there are poems in here that are not just from the Midwest. Seattle's in here. Chicago's in here. Oh. Washington DC is in here. Mexico is in here. So this is, this was bittersweet because we traveled a lot at one point in time as poets, you know, and I wish I could say, I'm going to take it to AWP, but I don't think I will. <laughs> so, but I am going to read from it. And um, I hopefully will inspire others to read and write their own stories and their own concerns. Cause there's a quote I love by Mary Oliver from one of her poems that she says, tell me what it is you will do with your one wild and precious life. And I'm always pushing that James when I'm with people, because you have a short time here. Tell me what you're going to do. You know, like let's elevate this. Let's evolve. Let's go back to the old ways and bring them forward. And, you know, somehow, you know, everyone has, has, a, a role to play in tech engineers also have a role to play <laughs> hr managers have a role to absolutely play. we all have a role to play and i don't think we should discount this brief time that we spend on the planet so i'm going to make the most of it because i'm at a point where i can look back and i can look forward and i'm talking to the university of iowa about taking my papers because i don't have any children so i got a lot of projects going on as a madison poet laureate yeah. And then how do I model this for a youth poet laureate? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank very you. Exci so very exciting. I'm so glad to hear that. It's so great to have made the connection. Uh, thank you, Regina Harris Bayaki for connecting all of us. Uh, you can go to, if you're curious about hearing more of Angie performing, you can go to viewlesswings.com where the performances that we gave as part of the NIU new music festival are out there. And look out for uh, Angie's book coming in early 2022. So links in the show notes, of course. Again, thank you very much for being on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. Wings.